Hello everyone, what is up you guys? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are discussing the brutal murder of Betty Gore. Now, if you guys have a Hulu account, you may or may not have seen that there is a series that came out called Candy. Now, disclaimer, I am not sponsoring the series in any way. I am not sponsored by them. No affiliation whatsoever. I just watched the series pretty recently with my boyfriend and I was hooked on it. And learning that it was a true story, I wanted to know more about it and I wanted to know, see the discrepancies between the series itself and the true story about it. So I did my own research and I decided that that was going to be the case that we discussed today. Again, it is a crazy story with a twist of an ending if you have not seen it already. And I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about it. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. So this case begins with a woman named Candy Montgomery. However, her birth name is Candace Wheeler, and she was born on November 15th, 1949, and raised in Lucas, Texas. Now, there really isn't that much to be said about her life and her upbringing, but what we do know is that she was born into an army family, she moved around a lot, and she ended up meeting the man that would become her husband in the late 1960s, early 1970s. She ended up meeting a man named Pat Montgomery, and she met him because the two of them worked at Texas Instruments together, which is a technology company. Pat was working as an electrical engineer, while Candy was working as a secretary, and the two of them met and hit it off right away. So Pat and Candy ended up getting married in the early 1970s, and in 1977, the two of them ended up moving to Wiley, Texas, which was very close to Lucas, Texas. It's only about a 12-minute drive, so Candy really didn't travel far. Now, Wiley is a suburban city in Dallas and is only about 12 minutes away from Lucas, and both Lucas and Wiley belong to a county called Collin County. Now, inside of Collin County, there are about 8 to 10 subdivision towns, and the people who lived in Collin County at the time, remember this is the 1970s, they loved it because of the simplicity that Collin County offered. They worked, they went to church, they sent their kids to school. It was very, very simple. And for Pat and Candy in particular, life seemed to be going great, especially in their marriage. They ended up welcoming two children together. They had a daughter and a son. And once they had their two children, Candy decided to take a step back from working and having her job. And she really focused on being a stay-at-home mom. So Pat was the one leaving, going to his nine to five every day. While Candy, on the other hand, was at home. She was with the kids. She was cooking. She was cleaning. She was going to church functions. That was her life. 
So based off of everything I just said, for all things considered, this seems like your very typical couple. They frequently attended church together, like I said, and the church that they attended was the First United Methodist Church of Lucas. And the church is really where they were able to grow their social circle. That's how they met their friends. It was a lot of people who were around their age and had kids around their age or were a little older than them. But for the most part, it was all people around their age and they were able to socialize and make friends, especially for Candy because she was a stay-at-home mom and it was really difficult for her to have a social life and to make friends. So Candy really appreciated the fact that the church kind of gave her a floodgate into that social life and gave her some friends. And a lot of these friends, most of them actually had families of their own. So Pat and Candy were making friends with other couples and other families. And one of those families in particular was the Gore family. Now, similar to the Montgomery family, the Gore family was a young family that consisted of Alan and Betty Gore, who were husband and wife, as well as their young daughter. Now, ironically enough, the Gore's daughter and the Montgomery's daughter were around the same age, so they loved spending time together. They actually ended up going to school together, so they were doing playdates and sleepovers. And Betty and Candy became pretty close because of that, because their children were all always around each other. It gave them a lot of time to get to know each other as well. So let's talk about Betty Gore. Now, Betty Gore was born on January 9th, 1950 in Harper County, Kansas to her parents, Charles and Bertha Pomroy. In January of 1970, Betty ended up marrying her husband, a man named Alan Gore, and Alan was actually Betty's math teacher in college, and that's how the two of them met. Now, Betty's family never really liked Alan. They were never the fondest of him. They always thought that Betty could do better than Alan. And you know how parents always think that there's no one good enough for their child. It seemed to be a little bit more than that for Betty's parents. They always thought that Alan was a little bit standoffish. They thought that he just wasn't a very warm or inviting person. And so they always just figured that he wasn't the guy for Betty. But despite that, Betty seemed to be really happy with Alan. They ended up having their first daughter while the two of them were settled in Dallas. So this was before they moved to Collin County. And at the time, Alan was actually working at an electronics company, and this caused him to travel a lot. Now, something about Betty is that she had a fear of being alone, and she had an abandonment fear. And it wasn't necessarily just as simple as having the fear that Alan was going to one day abandon their family, even though that was a very constant fear in her life as well. Betty was afraid if Alan just left for work for the day. She did not like being at home alone. She didn't like being at the house. She would constantly call his work. And if he did have to go on a work trip, she would get crippling anxiety from it. She would be incredibly sad, incredibly depressed because of it. And Alan didn't really know what to do about that because there wasn't much that he could do. You know, he tried to give her a bunch of reassurance. He tried to tell her that he would be back. He tried to tell her that everything's going to be okay. I'll see you tomorrow. But for Betty, it was a lot deeper than that. And just hearing those words from Alan didn't really help. So like I said, the two of them were living in Dallas, Texas when their first daughter was born. However, they did not stay there long because the two of them ended up moving to Wiley in 1976. 
Now, when they moved to Wiley, Betty decided to take a job as an elementary school teacher. Now, this seemed to be really great for her because it would give her something to do during the day. She wouldn't have that fear of abandonment that she felt every time that Alan left for work wouldn't be as intense. She would be able to distract herself. And so she thought this was going to be a really positive thing for her. However, Betty quickly learned that this was not something that she enjoyed at all. She had a really hard time controlling her classroom, controlling the students in her classroom. She was teaching fifth grade and fifth graders are by no means the easiest to tame. And Betty was a very soft-spoken person. She wasn't someone who was very demanding. And so having to take control of an entire classroom of fifth graders was not something that she was necessarily the best at. And because of that, it heightened her anxiety and her feeling of being overwhelmed. And she just really wasn't happy. She wasn't happy with her job. She didn't have a lot of friends. She was still struggling, you know, when she first moved to Wiley to make friends. And along with that, at this time, her marriage wasn't doing so great either. The spark and romance and passion in Betty and Alan's marriage was pretty non-existent at this point. Their days felt very robotic. They didn't have a lot of chemistry or connection. And so Betty thought long and hard on how to fix this and how she can bring a new light into her family, how she can kind of reignite that spark. And after thinking about this for quite some time, she decided that the best way to do this, or in her mind, the best way to do this was to have another baby and to bring another baby into their family, hoping that this would give them some sort of excitement and joy and fulfillment. So when Betty approached Alan with this idea, Alan was a little bit reluctant at first. However, he ultimately agreed and Betty was thrilled. And once she got the green light from Alan, she decided to go ahead and start planning out how she wanted this pregnancy to look. And she became very technical with it. And when it comes to trying to have a baby, there's no right or wrong way to do it necessarily. But in Betty's case in particular, she knew that she wanted to have a baby in the middle of the summer. And the reason for that was because she's a teacher and she didn't want to have to take off a significant amount of time from work. She wanted to be able to have her baby in the middle of the summer and be able to stay with the baby throughout the entirety of the summer and then just roll in to the school year that fall. So based off of all the math that she did in her head, Betty and Alan went forward with trying to get pregnant and they started trying in the late fall of 1978. And for Betty, again, this was something that she thought was going to bring excitement and joy. However, for Alan, it had the opposite effect. The act of trying to have a baby felt very mechanical. During Betty's ovulation period, Alan and Betty would have sex every single night and he felt, again, there was no chemical there. There was no spark. There was no romance. And he just in turn felt used by his wife in this sense. And because Alan was so stuck in that mindset, he actually really started resenting Betty for it. However, Alan always grew up with the idea that divorce was never an option. Alan knew that his marriage needed a shift. There was no way that they were going to be able to survive if the two of them didn't do something about the current state of their marriage. So Alan started talking to some of his friends, particularly the ones that attended the same church. And again, Alan's family and Candy's family attended the same church. And so they all had the same group of friends. And through these friends, Alan heard about a program called Marriage Encounter. 
Now, marriage encounter is essentially a much more intense version of a counseling session where couples meet together in a conference room and they sit around and they discuss the issues going on in their marriage with their partner. And while this might not seem very appealing to you, again, to each their own, Alan heard about it and he heard that people had very positive experiences coming out of it. So he decided to bring this up to Betty, thinking that maybe this could be something that would help their marriage. However, when he did bring it up to Betty, Betty was not thrilled. She kind of took it as an insult and thought that Alan was insulting their marriage and insulting her. So in turn, the two of them just never talked about it again and it was swept under the rug. Now, this case really puts a new meaning to you don't know what goes on behind closed doors and the grass is always greener on the other side because when Betty shut down the marriage encounter offer that Alan had made him, Alan started, you know, looking at all of his friends who were married and thought that they all had these perfect marriages and these perfect relationships. And he was starting to wonder why he himself wasn't experiencing that with his wife. And in particular, he was looking at his friends, the Montgomery family. He he was looking at Candy and Pat and their relationship and saw how their relationship seemed so exciting and fun and Candy seemed so lively and very energetic and excited for life. And again, he just didn't feel like he was getting that with Betty. And so it was a really big struggle for him. However, what Alan didn't know at the time was that Candy and Pat's relationship wasn't all that great either. Candy in particular had felt for years that the romance department of her relationship was really lacking. And for years, Candy felt as if she would make all of these advances towards Pat. However, Pat would turn her down and Candy would feel rejected and it really hurt her ego. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. And so after a while of this routine of Candy feeling rejected or feeling like she wasn't getting the attention that she deserved, instead of necessarily, you know, bringing this up to her husband and talking about it, she decided that she was going to do something else. She came up with this brilliant idea in her mind. And that idea was to have an affair. Now, at first, when Candy came up with this idea, she really didn't know who she wanted to have this affair with. It wasn't like it was just a spur of the moment thing that just happened in the heat of the moment. She was really being very thoughtful about this, weirdly enough, and she was trying to figure out who would be the perfect person to have an affair with? And that is when she sought out Alan Gore. 
Now, like I said earlier, and like I've been mentioning, the Gores and the Montgomerys were very good friends. Their kids had playdates and sleepovers. And so this was not just some random stranger on the street. Candy and Betty were good friends and their families all hung out together. They went to church together. And Candy and Alan in particular were actually on this volleyball league at their church. So they would go to practices and games. And that was really the only time that Alan and Candy were ever without their spouses because neither Pat nor Betty was a part of this volleyball league. So in November of 1978, after a volleyball practice, Alan and Candy were walking out to their cars in the parking lot by themselves. And they decided to get into one of their cars together after Candy told Alan that she had something to talk to him about. She gets in the car with Alan and the two of them start having small talk and eventually Candy just flat out asks Alan if he would be interested in having an affair with her. Just flat out, point blank, just like that. And at first, obviously, Alan was very taken back. He didn't know if this was a joke, if she was playing some kind of prank or if she was serious. However, after a couple moments, Alan realized that Candy was definitely very serious about this offer. Now, when talking it through with Candy in this car, Alan told Candy that there was no way that he was going to be able to give Candy an answer in that moment. So he said to, you know, give him some time to think and he'll get back to her on that. He'll circle back around with her on whether or not the two of them are going to go through with this affair. So after that, Candy got out of the car and the two of them went their separate ways home. And Alan didn't actually reach out to Candy for several weeks after that. And in those several weeks, Candy felt very embarrassed. She felt like she put herself out there and she got rejected again. But then after about three weeks on her 29th birthday, Candy received a phone call from Alan. Now, when she received this phone call, she obviously felt a complete you know, sigh of relief because now she didn't have to feel so embarrassed or flustered for throwing herself at Alan the way that she did. But on the phone call, Alan basically told Candy that he wanted to meet with her again so the two of them could discuss the logistics of this affair. I swear to God, this is the most thought out, calculated affair to ever exist. So Alan and Candy met again, and while nothing physical happened, the two of them did lay out the pros and cons of having an affair. Some of the points that were pointed out in this meeting was Betty was actually pregnant at this point. And Alan felt that it wouldn't be fair to his wife to start an affair in the midst of her being pregnant because he didn't want to do anything that would stress Betty out during the time of her pregnancy. And Candy, on the other hand, admitted that she loved Pat and she wouldn't want to do anything to hurt him or their marriage. However, regardless of both of those factors, it did not stop them because the two of them decided that they were still going to go for it. And again, I don't know much about affairs, thankfully. However, the fact that this was so calculated is very interesting. The fact that it was so thought out and so premeditated. The meetings that went on before the affair actually started lasted for about a month. So they had a month of meeting up with each other and talking about what was gonna work and what wasn't gonna work and what the rules were going to be. 
Now, when it came to those rules, Candy and Alan both agreed that their relationship was going to be strictly physical. And if either one of them had ever developed feelings throughout the affair, then the two of them were going to cut it off completely. Other rules that they had included the expenses, so the motels that they were going to stay at, the food that they were going to have, the gas, all of that was going to be split. They also decided that they were only going to meet on weekdays while their spouses were at work, and they were going to do so during Alan's two-hour lunch break. They also decided that they were going to meet once every other week, and they would go to a motel, and Candy would provide lunch. That way, they could get the most out of Alan's two-hour lunch break. So after about a month of these meetings in December of 1978, that is when Alan and Candy's affair officially began. The day the affair started, it started off like any normal day. Candy knew that she was going to be meeting up with Alan around noon, so she packed Pat a lunch, sent him on his way off to work, and once Pat left, she then started preparing lunch for her and Alan. She packed an entire picnic basket, she also packed a little lingerie dress into the basket and was on her merry way as well. She had already dropped her daughter and her son off at school that day, and by 10.45 a.m., she was ready to go. And she got into the motel, all checked in, and kind of settled at around 11.15 a.m. Now, once Candy arrived to the motel, she ended up calling Alan and told him where to meet her and what the room number was, and Alan told her that he was on his way. Alan arrived to the motel around noon and the two of them ate lunch and then did what they went there to do. The two of them slept together and at first they were kind of both in shock in the fact that they actually went through with this and the fact that they actually did this. And so they kind of got a high off of it. It was an adrenaline rush feeling and that was just the beginning. The two of them continued this affair for months, and again, this affair did something for both of them psychologically. Alan felt a sense of relaxation with Candy. However, this was mainly because he didn't have to worry about his job or his family life or his finances. He could completely forget that for a short period of time. And for Candy, the affair seemed to give her a new pep in her step doing something that she wasn't supposed to be doing while also living in a heavily conservative town and being an active churchgoer with the husband and the kids and the whole nine was thrilling to her and candy and alan formed a friendship throughout all of this as well they would send each other cards they would give each other gifts they had their own inside jokes they really were connecting on more than just a physical level and they probably connected deeper than they would want to admit but keep in mind not only did both of them still have spouses at this point betty at this point was now seven months pregnant and by the seventh month mark in betty's pregnancy alan started to feel a little bit of guilt he started to think you know my wife's pregnant if she goes into labor while i'm with candy i am going to feel horrible and betty around this time started noticing that their marriage needed a little help as well so betty actually approached alan and talked to him about the possibility of going to those marriage encounter classes that i mentioned earlier 
Now, by Betty approaching Alan and telling him that she was willing to go to these courses, it gave Alan a big sense of hope that maybe their marriage could be saved. And now Betty was trying at least to fix their marriage and to repair what had been broken. And so because of that, he decided to cut the affair off with Candy. He ended up telling Candy that, you know, my wife is about to have another baby, so it's probably not the best idea. Her due date is coming up. She wants to go to these marriage encounter courses. I think it would be great for us and kind of went down that path. And Alan and Candy came to an amicable decision that ending the affair was probably what was best. So the two of them end the affair and they go on with their lives just as they had before the affair had started. Now, Candy actually threw Betty a surprise baby shower after the affair ended, which is mind blowing. She throws Betty the surprise baby shower in the church and Betty is thrilled because she feels like she has friends and she's surrounded by all these people and it makes her feel really special. However, little does she know the woman who threw her this baby shower was just sleeping with her husband. So Betty and Alan welcome their second daughter in early July. Her name is Bethany. And at first things were going great. Alan and Betty were really connecting. It did bring them closer. However, it was short lived. It wasn't only just for a couple weeks after the baby was born until Alan and Candy rekindled their affair. Now for Betty in particular, she really could feel the distance between her and Alan. It was very apparent and she thought it was something that she did. She thought because, you know, she had just had a baby and her body was changing that maybe Alan didn't feel the same level of attraction to her as he once did. So she's trying to spice things up. She, you know, buys these outfits and makes these advances and Alan shuts her down each time. However, little does she know that the reason that he's rejecting her is because just a couple hours prior, he was with Candy. Now, after that had happened multiple times, Alan could actually visibly see the effect that it was having on Betty and how upset she was getting and how badly he was making her feel. So he approached Candy again and told her that the affair had to be over for good. And this was in October of 1979. So Alan tells Candy, the affair is over for good. I can see the effect that it's having on my wife who does not know about the affair, but the effects that the affair are having is really taking a toll on her. And this is when Alan and Betty officially decided to go to the marriage encounter classes. They had talked about it before, Betty had brought it up, Alan had brought it up, but now is when they officially decided to move forward with this. However, in October, when Alan ended the affair for a second time, it said that Candy was not as easygoing about it as she was the first time the affair ended. When Alan ended the affair for a second time, Candy was very distraught. She felt like she was losing Alan completely, not only as her lover, but as a friend as well. She was very upset with Alan for cutting it off and was nowhere near as understanding as she was the first time. However, Alan stuck to his guns on this one and he decided that the affair was over. And so that is when him and Betty started attending these marriage encounter courses. And while they were both skeptical about it, the courses seemed to really have a positive effect on Betty and Alan. 
Eddie and Alan were able to talk about things and even though it was uncomfortable, they were both able to get their feelings out. And in turn, it really made Alan feel like he made the right decision in cutting things off with Betty. Okay, so now that you have all of that backstory, all of that information, let's go to the day of the murder, June 13th, 1980. But before we move any further, we're gonna take a quick second and thank our sponsors for today's video. So June 13th, 1980, and for timeline purposes, this is about a year and a half after the affair began, and also a little under a year after the affair had ended. Like I said, the affair ended in October of 1979, and now we're in June of 1980. Now on the morning of June 13th, Alan had actually gone out of town on a business trip. He traveled to St. Paul, Minnesota, so that left Betty at home with her kids. Now, Betty's oldest daughter was actually staying with Candy at the time. She had had a sleepover the night before, so the night of the 12th, and she was actually planning on staying the night again, the night of the 13th. So that meant that at the house, it was only Betty and her youngest daughter, who was a little under the age of one years old at that time. Now, once Alan arrived to the airport early that afternoon, he ended up giving Betty a call and he called the house twice with no answer. The phone rang through both times, but Betty didn't pick up. However, at first, Alan wasn't super worried. He figured that maybe Betty was just out on one of her afternoon walks with their daughter, and he would just call her later once he got to the hotel. However, by the time the plane landed and Alan got to his hotel room, it was now early into the evening at this point, and Alan decided to call Betty again, but still got no answer. He called her multiple times, and after not getting an answer to any of them, he decided to call his neighbor, Richard. So Alan calls Richard and explains to him that he hasn't been able to get a hold of Betty and asked Richard to go over to their house just to see if Betty's car was in the driveway and to just knock on the door and see if Betty answers. So Richard agreed to do this. He walks over to the house, gives it a knock on the door. However, he does not get a response. So he goes back to Alan on the phone, tells Alan that Betty never answered the door. And so Alan hung up the phone on Richard. Now, Alan's next call, coincidentally enough, was to Candy, but not for what you might think. Alan knew that Candy was watching their oldest daughter and thought that maybe when Candy dropped their daughter off at their house that she would have seen Betty. Now again, at this point, Alan didn't know that their eldest daughter was spending the night at Candy's house for a second night. So he thought that his daughter was just back at home with Betty, but then learned from Candy that that was not the case. Now, Candy told Alan that she actually did see Betty earlier that day. She went over there to grab their daughter's swimsuit because the plan was Candy was going to take their eldest daughter to her swim practice because that was the only obligation that she had that day. And then they were going to continue the play date as usual. So Candy went over to the Gore's home to pick up the bathing suit and she went there by herself. And Candy told Alan that everything seemed fine when she went over there, but she did say that it seemed as if Betty was a little impatient for Candy to leave. It seemed like Betty wanted Candy to kind of 
get out of the house as if she was preparing to do something. So after that phone call with Candy, Alan then calls Richard back and asks Richard to go over to the house. At this point, Alan just knew that this was very unlike Betty, something had to be wrong. And he told Richard that do whatever you have to do, just get into the house somehow. He said, I don't care if you break a window, I don't care if you kick down the door, just get into the house. So Richard ends up walking over to the home, but he wasn't alone. He actually recruited two other of the neighbors named Lester and Jerry. So now you have Richard, Lester, and Jerry, who were all Alan's neighbors, walking over to Alan's home to see what is going on inside. So the three of them walk over to the house, they start knocking again, they start looking through windows, and they notice that all of the lights are on and Betty's car is in the driveway. However, they're not getting an answer. But what they didn't realize is that the front door was actually unlocked. So once they realized that, they walked into the house and all three of them start yelling out for Betty, however, are getting no response from her. Now, who they are getting a response from is their one-year-old daughter. Now, the one-year-old was crying in the crib and her voice had actually gone hoarse from crying so much. She had been crying for hours at that point. So Richard takes the baby and he walks out of the house while Jerry and Lester continue to do their search throughout the house, trying to look for Betty. So they go into her master bedroom and she's not there. They walk down the hallway, they look through the bathrooms, they go to the kitchen and Betty's not there. They then walk into the utility room and the utility room is basically like a laundry room mixed with a mud room. It's right off of the garage. And when they opened the door, they didn't even open it all the way. They just cracked it open. They saw Betty lying in a pool of blood. Due to how disfigured her face looked from her injuries, Lester and Jerry assumed that she had shot herself in the face. Now, after that, Lester and Jerry call Alan's hotel room, and that is when they tell him that something horrible had happened. Now, Alan is obviously frantic and he's trying to get as much information as he can, but what he learns is that even though his youngest daughter is alive, Betty, on the other hand, is not. Police are called and they immediately arrive on the scene. Again, this is not the type of crime that happens in a community like this. This is such a small town. And when police arrived, they were shocked at what they found. Now, instead of what was initially believed, which was that Betty was shot, it didn't take long for investigators to figure out that Betty was actually not shot, but in fact, she was killed with an ax. Betty had been struck with an ax 41 times. And the medical examiner said that the right side of her face was basically just ripped off by the time her body was found due to those injuries. Now the ax itself did belong to Betty and it was found sitting beside her. And again, this ax did belong to Betty and Alan. It was usually kept in their garage, which is right off of the utility room. 
Now to kill someone like this with an ax, it was a crime of opportunity, considering the fact that it was Betty and Alan's ax and the ax was left at the crime scene. And then to strike someone 41 times is definitely a crime of passion. Now, when it comes to the crime scene, police were able to find some fingerprints left behind as well as a shoe print, but that was really all they had to go off of. And remember, technology was nowhere near as advanced as it is today. Now, after investigating the crime scene, police got in contact with Alan and really tried to get an understanding of his life with Betty and what that all looked like. And during that conversation, Alan confessed to police that he did have an affair and he had an affair with Candy Montgomery, who coincidentally was the very last person to see Betty before she died. So because of this, police bring in Candy for questioning. And while she walks them through the entire timeline, she says she went over to Betty's house, went there to grab the swimsuit, kind of got caught up just talking to Betty and catching up with her. And then she left to go pick up her kids from church. Candy denied having any involvement in this and she played the part of really wanting to be as helpful as possible. Candy told police that after she left Betty's house, she had realized what the time was and realized that she didn't have time to run errands as she had planned to that day. And instead she went straight to the church to not only pick up her kids, but Betty's daughter as well. And then the three of them all went to the movies together and then went back to Candy's house and they had dinner and went to bed together. Now, after police spoke to Candy, they asked if she would be willing to give her fingerprints, which she agreed to do, not knowing that this would be the smoking gun in this case. Now, like I said, police did have fingerprints from the scene, and when they matched those fingerprints to Candy's, it was a match. So because they were able to match the DNA found at the crime scene with Candy's DNA, along with the fact that she was the last person to see Betty, Candy was arrested for Betty's murder on June 27th of 1980. Now, at first, no one in the community believed this because Candy at that time was not the type of person that seemed to be capable of murdering someone. Again, this was decades ago and how we've progressed in our knowledge of murderers and serial killers, we know now that there's no specific type of person that looks like a serial killer. There's no poster child for a serial killer. However, back then, no one believed that the church going mother was going to ax someone 41 times to death. So Candy actually pled not guilty to this. And because of that, her trial began on October 20th of 1980. Now, Candy's lawyer was a man named Don Crowder, and when he gave his opening statement, he shocked everyone when he said that Candy killed Betty. However, it was self-defense. Now, what's crazy about this claim is that at this point, you still had people arguing whether or not they believed that Candy even murdered Betty at all. So you had people arguing, you know, did she do this? Did she not do this? But now it's confirmed she did do this. She did murder Betty Gore. She did strike her with an ax 41 times. However, now they're claiming that that was because of self-defense. 
Candy ended up taking the stand on October 23rd and recounted her version of events. Candy said that on June 13th, while she was at Betty's house, Betty confronted Candy about the affair that she had been having with Alan. Candy said that she was taken aback because the affair had ended months prior. However, she came clean to Betty and told her the truth. Candy also told Betty that it was in the past, it was over, but Betty was obviously and understandably still very angry. Candy said that once she confessed, Betty left the room and came back with an ax in her hand. Candy said she was completely caught off guard and the two of them argued back and forth for a couple minutes. However, ultimately, Candy apologized to Betty. Now, Candy's apology to Betty in turn actually had the opposite effect, and in turn, Betty pushed Candy into the utility room. After pushing her into the utility room, Candy said that Betty began attempting to strike her with an axe. Candy said she assured Betty over and over again that she didn't want Alan anymore and that the affair was over, and the two of them tussled back and forth with the axe. So according to Candy, the two of them are grabbing the axe from each other. Candy's trying to escape. They were yelling, they were arguing, but then Betty's baby started crying. Now, according to Candy, when the baby woke up and began crying, Betty looked at her and said, shh. So she's looking at Candy and shushing Candy. Now, this is where it, things just get very bizarre. According to Candy, when Betty shushed her, it ignited this trauma response that Candy didn't even know that she had. According to Candy, when Betty shushed her, it reminded Candy of a memory that she had when she was four years old with her mom and her mom shushed her as well. Now, Candy said when she was four years old and her mom shushed her, it ignited this intense anger that she had never experienced before and she had always held that anger in and she had always never even addressed that anger and so when betty shushed her this just intense anger overfilled her body again and she grabbed the axe from betty and struck her with that axe 41 times now you might be sitting there and thinking that makes no sense that doesn't really to shush someone and have that intense of a response that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense and the prosecution thought so too because the prosecution thought that this self-defense argument was bs because the argument of self-defense really has a hard time standing on its own two feet when you overkill someone stabbing someone with an axe 41 times is overkill so at that point it's not self-defense anymore at that point it's a crime of passion but on october 29th 1980 it was now up for the jury to decide and the jury deliberated for under four hours before coming to the conclusion that candy montgomery was not guilty let me repeat that candy montgomery was found not guilty not guilty of murder in any degree and not guilty of manslaughter she was completely free now as you can imagine this stopped the community in its tracks because how do you commit such a brutal act and not get 
any amount of punishment. There are a lot of people who blame the prosecution in this case and say that they didn't come up with a strong enough argument, but the prosecution basically has said from the beginning that they didn't think that they needed to come up with a super strong argument because everything kind of explains itself in this case. A lot of people also believe that the self-defense argument is not true, but in fact, Candy killed Betty either after Betty found out about the affair or Betty threatened to expose the affair or if Candy felt threatened by Betty, but we will never really know. So now Candy was and still is actually a free woman. After the trial, she ended up moving to Georgia with her family. However, her and Pat got divorced about four years later. She ended up changing her last name and it is assumed that she changed it back to her maiden name and it's assumed that she goes by Candace Wheeler now. And you might be wondering what she does for her profession and Candy or Candace Wheeler is now working as a family counselor. As far as Alan Gore goes, he did get married after the trial ended. However, that marriage did end in a divorce a couple years later. So I guess he did come around to the idea of divorce after all. And when it comes to Betty's daughters, Alan did end up losing custody of them and they moved in with Betty's parents. So that you guys is the case of Betty Gore and Alan Gore and Candy Montgomery or Candace Wheeler, however you wanna say it. And I'm really curious to hear what you guys have to say about this one. If you believe the self-defense argument, how you think this transpired otherwise, definitely let me know what you think. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well. And you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back in a couple days with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.